As Odell said, we've been thinking about the heart over the last um, couple of weeks, thinking about some stories from the um, part of the Old Testament. We call it the historical books. The um, Jewish people call it the prophetic books. They call it that because these weren't just historical events of things that happened, but it's what God did, what God said in the midst of these events. And we're going to look at a story today of another event that took place in the life of David. We're also going to see what God said, what God spoke into the situation, and, and why God did that, why that, and how that changed David's heart. The, the good thing about we, for some of you who aren't regular, we have an earlier service on a, another gathering on a Sunday morning. And so one of the advantages of being able to speak at an earlier gathering, apart from this one, is you kind of get a dry run. You get to do your message and you say, okay, here's some things I maybe need to emphasize in the 1030. Here's some things I maybe need to leave out. Um, and so, but I want to say this based on what we did earlier. If you've come here today and you're carrying something. I don't mean physically. You're carrying something in your heart um, that you feel shame about. Um, this is a safe place to be today. We're going to be talking a wee bit about that. Maybe you've been trying to cover up something for quite some time in your life or, or ignore something in your life. And as I give this message today about what happened in the life of David, if anything starts to rise up in your heart where you start to feel that you need to do something about it, we, we have people who will be available to pray with you afterwards. What I really strongly encourage you to do is don't ignore those promptings. Maybe this is something that's been happening for a while. And as we, this is what God's word does when we, when we speak it, when God speaks. It, it points to things in our own hearts that we need to deal with. And there might be something in someone's heart here today, and maybe for months, maybe for years, you've just not been dealing with it. And you've been carrying it. And when we sing these worship songs, there's something inside you holds you back from doing it. Maybe when you see the joy in people's lives, you don't feel that joy. And, and I'm saying that quite specifically because David in this story today lost his joy. He wasn't able to sing and write his psalms anymore. There was something in his heart that he wasn't dealing with until God spoke. And that's what we're doing today. So, as we've said, we're looking at some of these stories. Um, we're thinking about some of the kings of Israel and we're thinking about David. Two weeks ago, um, Odell let st started this series off looking at Saul. And I was thinking this week, if Saul had a tombstone, I think it might have said something like this, okay? Here lies Saul ben Kish, the son of Kish. I did it my way. A man who was insistent on doing things his own way, right through his life. When God gave him chance after chance to deal with the things that were wrong, he ignored it. And Adele reminded us of, of how dangerous that is to go through our lives, constantly ignoring and resisting what God is saying to us. His life ended very sadly. Last week, we talked about David, who was the opposite. He was a man after God's heart. He was a man who was committed to doing God's will. He listened to God, unlike Saul, who didn't listen. And he was a man who was passionate about God's honor, God's glory. He wanted God to be in the center, not just of his life, but at the center of the whole nation again. He wanted people to worship God and have their lives centered on God. 
What I'm going to say today is David had another side, and so do we. When Kirsten and I first left Edinburgh after our first spell in ministry here, we went down to the beautiful city of York in England. And I still remember one time we had this guest preacher came to our church from Liverpool. He was actually the chaplain of Liverpool Football Club at the time. Um, great guy. And I still remember to this day the opening words of his sermon. And this is what he said. Brothers and sisters, every one of us is like the moon. Did you know that you were like the moon? And I am too. He said, we each have a dark side. Every human being, he said, on this planet has a dark side. And he said, so do I, and so do you. And I remember that day. That has lived with me for almost 30 years, that statement. And as I go through my life, and even look in my own heart, and I hear stories of other Christian leaders, and I'm going to mention some of these publicly this morning, and I don't apologize for doing that, because for far too long, these stories were hidden. People didn't believe it. That's surely not him. He would never do something like that. But over the last probably 15 to 20 years, a number of prominent leaders in the church who had successful ministries, big churches, doing great things for God, writing books, and people were buying their books and listening to their seminars, and going to their churches, but they had a dark side, and that dark side was hidden. And even people in their churches didn't know about this dark side. And I'm going to mention this today because these things need to be mentioned, whether it's someone like Mark Driscoll from Mars Hill Church, or Bill Hybels from Willow Creek Community Church. You may not know these names, but trust me, these were significant individuals who led churches. Or Mike Pelavacci from Soul Survivor over here, John Howard Yoder, the Anabaptist theologian. Ravi Zacharias, who had a great apologetics ministry all over the world. You may not know this next guy, but Kirsten and I also lived in Canada for 10 years. And the pastor of the largest family of churches in Canada was a man called Bruxy Cavey. He was a dynamic speaker, planted multiple churches, the largest church in all of Canada. He wrote books like The End of Religion. People adored this guy. I had lunch with him on one occasion, and he was a wonderful guy. And then it came out that he'd been um, abusing women in counseling sessions. Um, never mind all the scandals that have plagued the church over the years where um, young people have gone through abuse. And this is very, very timely. Uh, and, and maybe some of us are uncomfortable about hearing these things in a church, but for so long, these things were like put to the side, even in Hillsongs. Bran Houston's father who started Hillsongs, that's all come out too. And it was all put to the side as though, you know, God doesn't really care about this. This isn't important because we're successful. We're doing all of God's work, but we can just ignore those things. No, we can't because eventually those things come out. It might take the, the press to find out about it. It might take someone to have the courage to come forward and saying, this happened to me. And of course, we are, I'm sure some of us are aware about the Jimmy Savile programs, which are on the BBC this week. Again, not necessarily a church leader, but one of the things that's shocking me about watching that is when he talks openly about his faith. He calls himself a man of God. He would go to church 
he had this great celebration service for him in, in, in the cathedral in Liverpool when he died um, and talked about himself being a Christian. Shocking. God notices these things. God notices and takes note of when these things happen. And so David, let me just go back to this one thing. Um, this is really important. David did put God back in his place in the land. And we said that last week. And one of the things David did was he brought this object called the Ark of the Covenant back into the land of Israel. It had been uh, elsewhere, it, had been, it hadn't been there. And he brought it back because it was important. Now, we don't know exactly what it looked like, but here's one depiction of it. And I, and I want to talk about a couple of things about this at the start. Because this is really, really important for what David knew and for the rest of the message. This box was about four feet wide by about three feet. wasn't very big, maybe the size of a small computer desk. Um, then this box covered with gold were the Ten Commandments. And these were the commands that God gave not just the people of Israel, but God gave humanity. Most of our Western democracies, our laws are based on these commandments. Do not steal. Do not kill. Honor your, your husband and your wife. Don't commit adultery. Don't covet what other people have. Respect your parents. Basic guidelines and, and laws to live our lives. And God gave those commandments and they kept them inside this box to remind them of how God wanted them to live their lives. But it also reminded them that they couldn't keep these. Every single person failed. And no, one, no one was perfect. No one could always keep the commands. And they knew that. So what do you do when you break some of God's basic commandments? What happens to you? Um, will God punish you? What does God think about you? On top of this box, you see a couple of statues of angels. But on the top of this box, the lid was called the mercy seat. The mercy seat. And once a year, the, the priest, um, the leader of, of Israel's sacrificial system, would take a sacrifice. He would go into a room where this box was kept, and he would put that sacrifice on the top of the box. A, sac a little lamb, an animal that was sacrificed. He had confessed his sins, and the sins of all the people were confessed over this animal, and it was sacrificed on the top of that box. And that was where God showed his mercy. God loved and forgave and had compassion on the people. He knew that they would break his laws. He knew that even before he gave them. Okay, but he wanted to show mercy. And mercy, there's a verse in the Bible that says, mercy triumphs over judgment. God could have judged them. He was totally within his right to do that. But he showed mercy when they acknowledged their sin, acknowledged what they'd done wrong, confessed that, didn't hide it, God was a God of forgiveness. There were words which David must have known. These are the most quoted words in the whole Bible about God that God said. And there's an amazing book by a guy called John Mark Comer called God Has a Name. If you ever read this book, I honestly, you will be blessed by it. And it's based on this passage. This is what it says. David knew these words, Yahweh, the name for God in the Bible. Yahweh is what? He's the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. 
David knew those words. He lived those words out in his life until we come to the incident that we're going to read about today. It's found in the, in, in, in the chapters 11 and 12 of 2 Samuel. Now, they're long chapters. I'm not going to read them, but I'm going to read one of David's Psalms in just a moment. So I'm going to describe what happened to this mighty man who had been called by God, who defeated giants, who overcame all the enemies of God, who brought the ark back and uh, wrote all these worship, amazing worship songs for people to sing, who loved God with all his heart. We're not talking about a corrupt individual who, who rejects God. We're talking about the, the person that the Bible says, of all people that ever lived, this man had a heart after God's heart. That's who we're talking about. What did he do? One day, in Second Samuel 11, verse 1, it says, It was springtime, the time when kings go off to battle. The context was the people of Israel had been in a battle for about a year. They'd been fighting against a group called the Ammonites who lived the other side of the River Jordan. Um, they basically defeated them, but the Ammonites had come back to attack them again. They'd waited till the winter was over, and in the springtime, David sent his soldiers off over the River Jordan to the city of Rabbah to fight against the Ammonites. But David doesn't go. He stays in Jerusalem. One evening, he comes out from his palace, and he goes on the roof of his palace, and he starts to walk around the roof of his palace, looking over his great city, seeing who's over here. And then he goes and has a look at this part of the city, and then his eyes go here. And he looks over in the distance, and he sees a woman bathing, having a bath over on the roof of her house. The Bible makes it very clear that all of us will see things, okay, that will tempt us. And it says there's nothing wrong in being tempted. We're all tempted. But what happens is when you focus on it, when you don't just glance, but you keep looking, and you keep looking, and you keep looking, and you focus until it gets in your heart and in your mind, and David was infatuated with this woman. Her name was Bathsheba. What you need to know about David was he had already married a, a number of other women. Earlier in, in, in 2 Samuel, it says, when he lived in the city of Hebron, he had two wives, and then he married four more wives. So he had six wives when he lived in Hebron, and he had children to all these women. So he's already got six wives by this stage, and then he falls in love with Saul's daughter, Michal, and, and he brings her to Jerusalem so that he can have her with him as well. So he's got at least six wives, multiple children with him. He's got this woman called Michal that he loves, and he's still not satisfied. And he looks and looks and looks, and he calls for one of his um, attendants in, and he says, who's that? Who's that woman that lives in that house? She was bathing last night. And the attendant says these words to him. She's called Bathsheba. She's the daughter of Eliam. She's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So he knows her name. But he knows two other things about him. He knows whose daughter she is. And what it, what it ends up being is she is the granddaughter, so she was quite a young woman, of David's trusted advisor, a man called Ahithophel, that David went to for advice all the time. This is his granddaughter, David's trusted advisor. And she's married. She's got a husband. She's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. David gets the messenger and says, go and get her for me. Go and get her and bring her to me. You go, this is the guy who loves God. 
This is the guy who like brings the ark and wants to follow the Ten Commandments. Doesn't he know what he's doing? He brings her in. He has intercourse with her. She gets pregnant, and a month later, she comes to David and says, I'm pregnant with your child. Now what does he do? So he thinks, hmm, I've got a problem on my hands here. Contacts Joab, the leader of his forces, and said, Joab, I want you to send back one of the fighting men, one of my soldiers. His name is Uriah the Hittite. So can you find him, please, Joab, and send him back? I want him to come back home. So Uriah the Hittite leaves the army, comes back, crosses the River Jordan, comes to Jerusalem, and David welcomes him, has this great celebration for him, and says, welcome Uriah, thank you for fighting for me. I want you to go home, and I want you to make love to your wife. See what David's doing? But Uriah refuses to do it. He says, I can't do that, great king. I'm here to fight battles, and when we're fighting battles, we don't do that. Okay, I need to serve you. I want to serve you even more than being at home with my wife. David's got a problem, so he has to have another plan. So plan number two is he brings him back again. This time he lavishes him with all kinds of drink and food till Uriah gets drunk, and then he tries to send him home to his wife. Again, Uriah won't go home. Hmm. So then David has another plan. And he calls for Joab, and he says, I'm going to send Uriah back to you. When I sent him back to you, and next time you're fighting against the Ammonites, put him in the front line. Put him in the most dangerous place you can possibly put him. And what happens is Uriah is killed. Joab sends a messenger back to David to tell him, your servant, words the Bible says, Uriah the Hittite is dead, and listen to David's response. Verse 25, David says to the messenger, take this word to Joab. Do not let this matter upset you. Do not let this matter upset you. The end of that chapter, this is what the Bible says. This is what it says at the end. But the thing that David did displeased the Lord. Now, NIV is very weak on this verse. It literally says, the thing that David did was evil in the sight of the Lord. God did not turn a blind eye saying, it doesn't matter. Really doesn't matter, okay? You've done enough good things, okay? You've done all the good things like this man whose thing series we're watching this week who tried to compensate for all the evil he was doing by doing more good things religious things in his life. doesn't work that way. Doesn't, there's other religions try to teach that. Other religions say, we're going to do all these bad things, but try and do more good things. And if you do more good things, maybe, just maybe, one day God will accept you and forgive you. That is not what the Bible teaches. That's not what the Old Testament or the New Testament teaches. That's not what the God of the Bible reveals to us. You don't compensate for the bad things by doing more good things. It displeased the Lord. So God says to Nathan the prophet, I want you to go and I want you to tell him, I am not pleased at what he's done. Confront him. And so Nathan comes in. He's very clever because he's going to talk to the king. Okay, you don't just go and tell the king, otherwise your head could be chopped off. You could lose your life. So he tells him a story. He says, great king, King David, I want to tell you a story about two men. There was a rich man who had so many flocks of sheep and lambs, he couldn't even count them, he had so many. 
and there was a poor man who had one little lamb. So, great king, the rich man goes to the poor man and he steals his little lamb and he kills it and sacrifices it. What do you think, king, should be done to somebody who does that? And David was enraged. He was so angry and said, that man must be punished. If, if, if I knew of someone like that, I would punish him immediately. Such a thing should not happen in my lands. And Nathan says to great King David, you are that man. You are that man. God sees what you've done. David immediately, immediately recognizes his sin. And he said, surely I have sinned against the Lord. I want to read one of David's songs this morning as we draw our service to a close. So in these last um, minutes that we have together, I want to read Psalm 51. Um, don't put it up on the screen, please. You can follow it in your Bible or on your phone, whatever you want, or you can just listen. So this is how David responded. When God says, this is not acceptable. You might be religious. You may have conquered giants. You might sing all these amazing songs. You might bring all these sacrifices, but that is not enough. This is not acceptable. Get your life in order. Come to me. Don't deny it. Don't hide it. And this is what David sings. It's called Psalm 51, and the, the inscription at the top says, David wrote this after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Listen to these words. David comes to God and he says, Oh, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. And that's that word hesed that Zach taught us back in the springtime, back in May when we were learning the story about Ruth, the unconditional, unfailing love of God, the, the love that will, God will never remove from us. Okay, it's not just a love like our love. It's a, it's a sacrificial love. It's a, it's a beautiful love. According to your love, have mercy, God, on me. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. The idea is wipe them away, God. Wash away all my iniquity. Scrub it clean. You know, wash me clean, all the things that I've done. And cleanse me, purify me from all my sin. He even gets quite specific in the words. He chooses three different words for sin. This is a guy who's not kind of, okay, God, like, just forgive me, okay? Can we go over this? He says, God, I've rebelled against you. I'm twisted and I fall short of your standards. I rebel, I'm twisted, and I fall short. God, I need you to forgive me. Then he goes on, I know my transgressions, that my sin is always before me. Against you, God, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful even at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me in the womb. Surely, God, you desire truth in these inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the secret place. He's acknowledging it, not hiding anymore. And said, God, this is what I've been like from I was born. Now I know what I'm capable of doing, and I don't deny it. And then he goes on, cleanse me. The word there is the same word that's for sin. He's like, purify my sin, 
cleanse me, wash away all of these sins, God, with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you've crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me away from your presence. He could have said, like you did with Saul. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me like you did with Saul. God, don't treat me like, please don't let me get to the stage where my predecessor got to. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me and to obey you. Then, he said, I will teach other sinners your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me, Lord, from my guilt, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips, my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings, but the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. That's what he wrote. This is a man who's serious, who wants to God to restore him again, who understands <clears throat> the love of God. <clears throat> so David says four things in this. And this is, as we draw us to a close, this is, this is what God, where God needs us to get to in our lives. Now, just let me say, the other thing we can do when we hear this story, we, we can compare ourselves. We, we all do this, don't we? We say, well, I'm not as bad as that. Okay, I've never done that, okay? Or we watch these programs on TV, but Jimmy Sam will say, I'm not as bad as him. He's a really, really evil man, okay? I'm not that bad. But what we tend to do when we do all of that is we ignore the things that are in here by comparing ourselves to others. Well, he deserves to be punished for what he did, but I don't because I don't do what he did. David doesn't do that. He doesn't do that anymore. He could have compared himself to all the atrocities that Saul did and said, okay, this is bad, God, but it's not as bad as that guy. But he doesn't do that. He said, God, I acknowledge what I've done. He said, God, I need you to cleanse me. You're the only one who can clean my heart. Just clean me out, God. You know, all these little secret sins and big sins and ones that I've even ignored, just clean me out altogether. Wash me. And it's the idea of taking a piece of cloth that's got stains on it, and you get rid of the stains, and then you wash the piece of cloth, and then it's brand new. He said, God, only you can do that. And when God forgives us, he cleanses our hearts. He doesn't leave those stains there anymore. He completely makes us clean. And then he said, God, change me. Give me the kind of heart that I had before. The kind of heart that wants to sing. He said, God, I can't sing anymore. He says, my guilt, I'm always carrying it around. I'm conscious of it all the time. I want to write these worship songs and love songs to you, but I don't feel right, God, because I know what I've done. Give me a new heart. Create that in me again and restore to me the joy that I had before. And finally said, save me so that I can sing and tell others of the kind of God you are. Because you see, when you're going around life and you know that you're really not living as God wants you to, or you're hiding something, you don't want to be telling others about God. 
Because you're a hypocrite. You feel like that. How can I tell others that God is an amazing God who forgives people when I'm holding on to this? Okay? And even as Christians, what we can say, well, well, Jesus died on the cross, so I'm already forgiven, so I don't need to confess it. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Even though God has already dealt with that, we need to confess it so that God can change us and change our hearts. So I want to conclude today. Odell has already quoted from the book of um, the epistles of John. I want to do one other as we close. In 1 John, John says <clears throat> these words. <clears throat> he says, there are some people who claim to be without sin. We're all goods. None of us are sinners. Sin's not real. It doesn't exist. Just go and live your life any way you please. Sin is not real. If you're like that, the Bible says you're deceiving yourself. If any of us says, I'm not a sinner, I don't do things that are wrong, sure we might make the odd mistake, then we're deceiving ourselves. And there's a God in heaven who looks down at our world and looks into this, this world in my heart and your heart, and he says, you're deceiving yourselves. David said, like from when I was born, this was true of me. And then there's others, and we say, well, I haven't actually done it. I do other things that are wrong, but that wasn't so bad. That was not a sin. And we try to deny specific sins that we do. And it says, if we do that, we're denying what God says. That is not acceptable. I won't tolerate it. Name it for what it is, and then watch what God will do. And then the author says this. If we do sin, if you or I sin, which we all do, God's speaking to us about this. He says, God has provided something to compensate, to deal with that. And it says, we have a defender. The author says, we have an advocate before the Father God. So when God looks upon me, sees the things that I do wrong, we have an advocate, and his name is Jesus. And he's saying, Father, he's messed up again. This guy who like preaches to people and they think he's got a white shirt and he's got a pure heart and he doesn't do things that are wrong. Oh yes, I do. And I can't hide my heart from God. But what I do know is that I have done things in my life that I am ashamed of. Things that I am not proud of. But I've dealt with those things. And I have someone in heaven who says, Father, forgive him. Because I defend him. And I defend him, Father, because in 1 John it says there is a sacrifice. And it's the same word for mercy seat. Same word. He's, God says, why should I not judge Don for what he's done? He says, because of this. 2,000 years ago, Father, I gave my life for Don. For all the sins that he's done, all the things that he's thought, all the little secret things that he cherishes in his heart that nobody knows about, and they're there, I dealt with it. So God forgive him, because he doesn't want to be like that. And God thinks about that for every one of you today. And if you've come here, God is not here to judge you, and neither are we. We believe in a God who forgives. We believe in a God who's compassionate, we believe in a God who came and said, I'll take your sins and I'll deal with them. If you just confess them and be honest before me, I will change your heart. So as the band come to lead us in our closing worship, let's just pause for a moment, invite the band just to come to the stage. Don't lose these moments.
Don't let these moments pass you by. If you need to get right with God today, if you need to stop hiding, don't leave this building today. Don't leave this building hiding something because you'll carry it and you'll carry it and you'll carry it and it won't go away. God loves you. He loves you and he's dealt with that. But he simply wants you to come and say, God, I know. I confess. Forgive me and cleanse me and change me. And he will do that and he can do it today. He's done it for me and he can do it for you. Amen.